You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and zero trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go, helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their sassy journey, visit netskope.com. Tensions between China and its neighbors, ICS incursions are troubling. The U.S. intelligence community comments on COVID-19 disinformation. The FBI tracks increased cybercrime activity during the pandemic. Johannes Ulrich explains Excel 4 macro vulnerabilities. Our guest is Tina C. Williams-Karoma from T-Secure on the importance of strong, effective leadership in cybersecurity. And smile for that webcam. Your boss may be watching. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Friday, May 1st, 2020. Tensions between China and its neighbors are finding more expression in cyberspace. As FireEye reported last week, Vietnam is thought to have conducted a recent cyber espionage campaign against Chinese targets, mostly targets that might yield information about the origins and transmission of COVID-19. Now Chinese threat actors are engaged in spear-phishing officials in Da Nang. Anomaly sees strong indications that the Pirate Panda Group is behind the attacks. Da Nang is a coastal city relatively close to the Paracel Islands, ownership of which is disputed among China, Vietnam, and the Philippines. CyberScoop says that the spear-phishing campaign seems linked to the territorial dispute, especially since Da Nang was recently visited by the USS Theodore Roosevelt, and the USS Bunker Hill on a diplomatic goodwill mission that took them near the disputed waters. The U.S. regards those waters as international. China says it owns them. While the best available information indicates that Kim Jong-un is still running North Korea and isn't under any serious immediate challenge, the recent scare about his health and the realization that the DPRK's succession plans are vague at best have led the Atlantic Council to warn that North Korean offensive cyber capabilities could become a loose cannon in the event of a leadership crisis in Pyongyang. The attacks on Israeli water and wastewater treatment facilities were conducted by hackers who knew how to affect programmable logic controllers, Security Week reports. The CBC says the Royal Canadian Mounted Police are investigating a ransomware attack against Northwest Territories Power Corporation website and email services. Both incidents are troubling. The Israeli incident appears to have been, possibly, a direct attack against industrial control systems. The Canadian incident, while still troublesome, looks like a more conventional ransomware attack on business systems. How and where the coronavirus strain that's come to be known as COVID-19 emerged has been the subject of a great deal of misinformation and disinformation. It seems beyond serious dispute that the virus emerged in China, and although consensus here is strong, that it jumped to humans from bats. The U.S. intelligence community has been investigating COVID-19's origins, 
and the Office of the Director of National Intelligence has released its initial findings. The statement in brief, and we quote it in full, quote, The entire intelligence community has been consistently providing critical support to U.S. policymakers and those responding to the COVID-19 virus, which originated in China. The intelligence community also concurs with the wide scientific consensus that the COVID-19 virus was not man-made or genetically modified. As we do in all crises, the community's experts respond by surging resources and producing critical intelligence on issues vital to U.S. national security. The IC will continue to rigorously examine emerging information and intelligence to determine whether the outbreak began through contact with infected animals or if it was the result of an accident at a laboratory in Wuhan. End quote. There had been disinformation from China that the virus was an American biowar program gone rogue and from fringe conspiracy speculators, largely but not exclusively in the U.S., that it was deliberately engineered by China in a Wuhan lab. The least credible version of the conspiracy theory was that the virus was a weapon the Chinese lost control of. The more credible version was that the virus emerged in its lethal form when some gain-of-function research in Wuhan was bungled and the virus was accidentally released. There is a major biological laboratory in Wuhan, and the U.S. intelligence community continues to investigate whether there may have been an accident in a research program there, but the ODNI's statement categorically rules out both deliberate weaponization and risky genetic engineering. So the remaining options seem to be either a lab accident or, more probably, zoonotic disease that made the jump from bats to humans. Foreign policy reports signs that Russian influence operations under preparation for the upcoming European and U.S. elections will prominently feature COVID-19 disinformation. Some of that disinformation will represent low-hanging fruit if people fear coming into a public polling place to vote, exaggerating and playing to such fear will have the effect of undermining the electorate's willingness to participate. According to Security Week, the European Union yesterday issued a condemnation of cyber attacks mounted against hospitals and other organizations engaged in fighting the COVID-19 pandemic. The EU didn't name names and much of the hacking is surely criminal and not under state direction. But some of the malicious activity probably is state-directed, notably attacks on Czech healthcare facilities, which Czech authorities and public opinion increasingly ascribe to Russian intelligence services. The U.S. Federal Bureau of Investigation says that reported cases of cybercrime have risen dramatically during the pandemic. How dramatically? The FBI's Internet Crime Complaint Center normally receives about 1,000 complaints a day. The IC3 is now logging two to three times that number, CyberArk observes. A report by Kaspersky concludes that remote desktop protocol brute forcing has increased tremendously. Quote, The lockdown has seen the appearance of a great many computers and servers able to be connected remotely. Right now, we are witnessing an increase in cybercriminal activity with a view to exploiting the situation to attack corporate resources that have now been made available, sometimes in a hurry, to remote workers. End quote. And finally, how do you keep workers on task while they're working remotely? And how hard do you even need to try? Granted that telework is not the same as phoning it in, but it does seem that some organizations are taking very intrusive steps to ensure that employees stay on task. The Washington Post writes, quote, Thousands of companies now use monitoring software to record employees' web browsing and active work hours. 
dispatching the kind of tools built for corporate offices into workers' phones, computers, and homes. But they have also sought to watch over the workers themselves, mandating always-on webcam rules, scheduling thrice-daily check-ins, and inundating workers with not-so-optional company happy hours, game nights, and lunchtime chats. End quote. Some of these seem fine. Well-intentioned morale boosters like happy hours and game nights seem innocent enough, and entirely innocent if they're truly voluntary and non-coercive. The key loggers and always-on webcams, however, seem to be another matter entirely. But even the innocent measures by which companies stay connected trouble some who see them as further blurring the lines between home and work, between free time and the time you spend on the clock. And eventually, close surveillance may become a net negative. We're fortunate at the CyberWire in that our work is the kind that doesn't seem to tempt anyone to keep very close tabs on us. If the stories are filed and accurate, well, the suits are good to go, and all of us have been enjoying the virtual happy hours, which are voluntary. But there may be kinds of work where some form of monitoring seems necessary. Are you, for example, working under a time and materials contract? Then managers might become a bit antsy over whether time was actually being entered honestly. Still, it seems there ought to be a solution that stops short the kind of Benthamite panopticon the Post describes, and we hesitate to even speculate about the workload involved in actually checking all those webcams and key logs. Management by walking around is fine, but management by online lurking? Well, that's another kettle of fish. Besides, do we all need another reminder of how toxic the data we collect can prove to be? Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. My guest today is Tina C. Williams-Coroma. She's owner and president of T-Secure, 
a cybersecurity services company based in Baltimore. Our conversation centers on her approach to leadership in cybersecurity and why the human side is so important. I think one of the first things I I, uh, bring up is just being clear on whether it's a services company or more of a product solution company, because um, how you start and what you need to start, I think, can be a little bit different. Um, So with a services company, the upside is that, you know, I think it's easier to get uh, started, less capital required up front typically uh, with a services-oriented business, depends on the specific type of service. But from a general rule of thumb, it is. You can have clients and be revenue generating, I think, a lot quicker than if it's a product or a solution that takes some R&D type of time and building you know, a prototype and things like that. So uh, likewise, and similarly, it's also you know whether they want a consultant type of company where it's just them as an individual type of contributor or if they're trying to build, um, you know, a larger entity where they would have employees and things like that. So across the board, it's just making sure that there's enough capital or money there, you know, to get the business started and to make payroll, even if it's just you. Uh, A lot of times (laughs) clients uh, pay Mm -hmm. a lot slower, right? You have to think of what the cycle is like. It's it's making sure they're understanding the, the difference between uh, how you ha- get income when you're a business owner uh, versus uh, being an employee where there's this dedicated check that arrives, <laughs> you know, every, yeah. um, you know, two weeks or semi-monthly or whatever the, the schedule is. So I think that that's one of the the biggest things um, that, that I say that might catch people by surprise. <laughs> Uh, just because you did work, uh, you know, one day doesn't mean you're suddenly going to have your money two weeks later, the way that you might in an employee type of uh, capacity or realm. Um, yeah, it's funny, you know, back when um, when I uh, had my own company as well, I remember it, we used to joke that uh, one of the perceptions with, that people often have who don't run their own companies is they think uh, at every company, there's a room in the back that's full of money. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, it's like, oh, you have your own company. Oh, you're your own boss. Man, how great. Right. You know, it's like, <laughs> yeah, it's right. like, tell me what you right. think Set that your own means. hours. Yeah. Right, right. <laughs> right. It's, oh, it's awesome. I get to choose which of the 80 hours right. per week I work. It's just, it's great. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's well, like, let, me, let me ask you this. Um, in particular, when you're speaking to women who are on that entrepreneurial path, are, are there specific messages that you share with them? Yeah, it. it um, I think one of the biggest things that I, I share with women is just um, really the importance for confidence and just knowing that you know what you know and you belong where you are. You know, I, I think that that's just really important because uh, in a lot of cases, especially in a technology context, but in, in business ownership in general, you know, I uh, recently just became aware that it was uh, even more recent than I thought, you know, for women being able to get like business loans on their own without a, a without having a, a male relative have to sign for them. You know, that's as recent as 1988. That is squarely within my, you know, generation. Mm-hmm. Like I was already born in here, you know? <laughs> um, right, right. And, and, and so with that being so recent, it, it's, um, you know, I think some people and may take it for granted uh, the uh, role and, and presence that, that women have um, in business and in entrepreneurship uh, in particular. 
So I think that that confidence um, and just, you know, knowing that uh, as a woman, you know, you're here, you know what you know, um, be confident in that and 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 carry that with you. Because I, I think confidence really goes a long way in terms of how we pursue um financing, how we pursue our ideas, the risks that we take, et cetera. Um, so I think that that's, that's one of the biggest things, um, you know, and I've had different encounters, you know, in my career being asked, like, why are you in the room? You know, and it's just mm-hmm. like, oh boy. Right. Yeah. Right. So, do, you, do you mind taking notes? Right. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's like, n- no. <laughs> um, so uh, yeah, I, I think that that's one of the the biggest things is, is just the confidence. I think everything else, uh, you know, stems from there. They've received a certain, you know, education. They have a certain training. They certainly have the ideas, uh, the innovation, you know, kind of mentality, the, the creativity. And uh, just with that confidence, you know, it makes sure they're asking questions. Like, you know, don't be afraid to ask questions thinking that it's going to, you know, make you look less competent. You know, that that can only serve as a disservice, right, uh, to them. Right. Be confident in what you know and be confident enough to ask the questions and say, huh, okay, tell me more about that. That's Tina C. Williams-Coroma from T-Secure. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Johannes Ulrich. He's the Dean of Research at the Sands Technology Institute, and he's also the host of the ISC Stormcast podcast. Johannes, it's always great to have you back. Um, We want to touch today about uh, an oldie but a goodie. Uh, We're talking about some Excel macros here. What are you guys tracking when it comes to this? Probably the number one ways how organizations are being compromised these days is the email with the office document as an attachment that includes a macro. Now, these macros are typically written in Visual Basic. That's sort of you know, the modern, current way how you are writing uh, macros. We had an interesting story here from one of our Internet Storm Center handlers. One of his users actually asked for a document to be released from quarantine. The document was flagged as suspicious. And the user says, hey, I know that person sent it to me. It was something I was waiting for. Well, uh, so I think it was Xavier who uh, looked at it closer. And initially, he didn't find any problems with that document. Uh, but uh, so it passed all the tests. Like it didn't have any Visual Basic macros in there. Uh, but it still you know, looked suspicious to him. It's sort of one of these where so your spidey senses are kind of tingling. <laughs> and um, what he then found was that uh, this particular document used an Excel 4 macro. Excel 4, you know, I don't know how old it is. Uh, yeah. uh, pretty uh, old. <laughs> <laughs> but it's one of those it's, things. So these, mm. these old things never go away. So, uh, right. yes, there was indeed an Excel 4 macro. And uh, since he found this, he 
sort of started, of course, looking for it and found many, many uh, more examples. Wow. So this is a case of, uh, I guess, that backwards compatibility that is sort of out of sight, out of mind could come back and bite you. Yes, and we had this before with Office Document. Not sure if you remember the Velvet Sweatshop password and uh, mm-hmm. some uh, Word documents. It was sort of another example here. With these macros, there are a couple other little tricks that are being played. Like in Excel, you can hide a worksheet. Now, that's uh, nothing really special. You just right-click and hide it. But turns out that in the Excel file format, the hidden parameter, actually three values. It's either visible, it's hidden, then they have a very hidden value. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, very hidden actually means that uh, this particular macro cannot be uh, unhidden just by clicking on it. Uh, mm. So lots of these little tricks that uh, the bad guys use to make it more difficult to really detect uh, these malicious documents. Yeah, I, I'm always left scratching my head because, I, and I suppose it is a reality that there are plenty of people out there who need to enable macros, but... I wonder who who are these people uh, yeah. because it's not something that, that in my own experience uh, I've found to be so. Well, uh, there are a lot of sort of enterprise Excel or office artists, I call them, that come up uh, with mm. fairly complex uh, spreadsheets and such that use these macros to even pull in values from APIs and such. So, uh, yes, they exist. Um, and that... Um, <laughs> Uh, that's really the hard part here uh, for uh, these um, for these security guys you know, to to filter out the right macros. Like in this case, you now the user actually expected a document like this, uh, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Uh, that makes it really difficult. In particular, if you're talking about more targeted attacks or these business email compromises, where an attacker already has insight into some of the emails being exchanged. Uh, then you can figure out who is the guy sending uh, those uh, weird uh, macros and maybe add even code to it. Yeah. Well, and how interesting, too, that in this case, uh, just, you know, somebody had a notion that something just didn't feel right, and that ended up uh, exposing the problem. And that's really, you know, what usually matters is sort of that experience, uh, really knowing what a document is supposed to look like. It's a, it's a lot of it is just experience and uh, figuring out uh, what's good, what's bad. Yeah, I guess yeah. that's the part they're trying to do with artificial intelligence. Uh, they have to clone Xavier here to make that work. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. You just get him to sign off on that. Yeah. That won't be a problem. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right, Johannes Elric, thanks for joining us. Thank you. And that's the CyberWire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for CyberWire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Ivan, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Tomorrow.